If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. And I think that that's that's right. D.L. Moody said that this one verse brought him to understand the love of God. Moody shared an instance from his life and his ministry when he was younger. He went to England and he met there a young minister named Henry Morehouse. And Morehouse said that he was thinking about coming to America to preach. And and Moody, seeking to be the elder statesman and seeking to be polite, told the young man that if he had ever uh, made it to Chicago, he would give him a chance to preach. And immediately after he left that interaction, he thought, oh, what have I done? I've never heard this young man preach. I don't know if he's able to preach. And I've just given him my pulpit. But he thought, oh, well, uh, surely he's not going to show up in Chicago anyway. Ha. Sometime later, Moody received a telegram, read thus, Just arrived in New York, will be in Chicago Sunday, Morehouse. (laughs) I would have loved to have been in the room when he received that. Uh, Moody was uh, frantic. He he had to be out of town that particular week, and, and now this kid is showing up. And so he goes to the elders in his church, and he talks to his wife about the the problem that he's placed himself in, and both Moody's wife and the men in the church urged the preacher to keep his commitment to this young man. And so Moody returns after a long week, and with some trepidation, he approaches his wife and he says, So dear, how did he do? And his wife, with quite boldness, says, Well, Reverend Moody, he's a better preacher than you are. She goes on to tell him he's been telling sinners all week long that the living God loves them. Now, Moody had his own misgivings about that being at the forefront of this proclamation. But what we learn is that he was preaching Morehouse for the better part of a week on this one verse, John 3.16. Now, I tell you this for a particular Reason And maybe to illustrate before I tell you the reason, uh, uh, Morehouse began to preach the evening that Moody was there back in the congregation, and he began by saying this, I've been hunting for a text all week, and I still haven't one, found one better than John 3.16, so I'm going to preach it one more time. That statement, I'm going to preach it one more time, is a statement that will come to this pulpit again soon. <laughs> I just want you to be aware. Uh, But this verse does lead us to understand it is a great declaration of God's love to you and I, those of us who don't deserve it, and yet we've received it. Uh, And so it's with that in mind that I ask you to stand to to your feet as we read God's Word together again this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son... That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have ever eternal excuse me, life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. These are the Lord's kind words to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning humbled by the weight of Your Word that You in Your kindness have displayed Your magnificent eternal love in the person and the work in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not leave this hour unchanged. I pray that you would write what you would have us to understand from this text on all of our hearts, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. The first thing that I want to do, and I think we've already done this, but I want to circle back around before we move on because there might be some confusion, is have just a word about uh, the red letters in your Bible. Uh, And I, I don't want to discourage you by what I'm going to say, but I do want to caution you. Uh, The red letters are an invention, just like the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. They are not inspired. We are not given the Scriptures in red letters. We're not even given quotation marks in the original Greek. And so scholars debate uh, what is the direct discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus and then precisely where John's commentary uh, begins. And again, I'm not saying this to cause you to have any distrust in your Bible. And and, uh, as I speak further, I think you'll understand why. But I, I do want to give two clear warnings. One, I've already spoken of, is we're really not sure uh, the words precisely that belong to Christ in His direct discourse and those that are commentary. And, and here's the problem really, and this is the, the more emphatic warning, is that a misunderstanding of the red letters, and this is a problem that has plagued the church differently and at different times, and I believe in our time it's plaguing us through uh, hijacking of red-letter Christianity so-called by liberal-type thinkers, um, red letters imply that some words are more authoritative than others. And so some people will come away with an idea that, well, I can look to the letters in red and I don't need to worry about all of the others. Or I can make an argument from the letters of, in red that is somehow detached from the others because the letters in red are the ones that Jesus spoke and Jesus speaks with greater authority than the entire economy of the Word of God. Beloved, can I encourage you this morning that the triune God does not speak out of both sides of His mouth? That all of the Word of God is God-breathed. In fact, we find that very reality conveyed to us from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is my belief that the verse we come to today is John's commentary on the direct discourse between Nicodemus and Jesus. It is not Jesus speaking here. Now we can disagree on that. Um, I think what we see here is Jesus 
has made his point of the need in the life of every individual, and he starts with the great teacher of Israel. And so no one is exempt from this reality. Everyone must be born again. And from there, John begins to lay out his argument about how we are to understand this reality. John is here commentating on what Jesus has interacted with uh, with the great teacher Nicodemus. As I was thinking about this particular verse, I thought, you know, this verse is really like a puffer fish. And some of you are going to say, what? Well, one of the first books that I was ever given as a, as a young man was a book about poisonous animals. And on one page, um, there was a chef dividing up the puffer fish. And on the next page was a picture of a coffin being carried out to a cemetery. To illustrate clearly the reality that the puffer fish uh, has a toxin inside of it that is 1,200 times greater in toxicity to the human body than that of cyanide. And the whole point is this, that if we don't rightly divide the puffer fish, you may die. If we don't rightly divide this one verse, we can distort, maim, and even kill good theology for the church. And boy, that has happened in so many different, different ways. It's important that we understand the, the, the weight of what it means to divide the Word. I think that we have had so many people divide the Word poorly, yours truly included in so many ways, that we think that it's no big deal to poorly divide the Word of truth. I could not, I could not disagree with that uh, more. You remember also Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The emphasis here is not merely on memorizing. The emphasis here is on rightly dividing out and rightly interpreting the word. Understanding 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 2.15, John 3.16, understanding each one of those passages and each one of those words in their right position and in their right emphasis. Uh, in our Sunday school class this morning, I was so thankful for Brian's teaching, and, and one of the things that he mentioned is, is the reality that when, well, when Satan contorts the Word of God, he often does it not even at the verse level, but with a singular word. He contorts the truth by maiming the understanding of one particular uh, word in a passage. And so it's important that we rightly emphasize and we rightly understand this text. And so we're going to take our time. We're going to devour it several words at a time. Now, this text does declare the, the love of God to the entire cosmos, to the entire world. And we will get to more of the world and what that means in a later Sunday. 
But here we need to understand that this verse declares with great emphatic triumph, it heralds the grandeur of the Gospel that, that, that should ultimately capture our attention. It should, it should bring us to, to our knees in praise to God that He so loved this world that He would give His only begotten Son that whoever believes upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, each one of the words that I just used, I think, deserves its own Sunday, its own wrestling, its own contextual argument. But before we get to that, I think we need to understand the context of the entire verse. We need to step back and not... Listen, do you know how many people will only hear John 3.16? And the sad reality is they will read into John 3.16 things that are not being argued up to John 3.16. I told you there are two errors when understanding John 3.16. And that is to misunderstand everything that precedes John 3.16. That's one grave error. And we're going to deal with that, I think, more today. And the other error is to to misunderstand everything that flows out of John 3.16. There are errors on every side, and we need to be careful that we do not fall into them. Well, there is quite the context to this text that keeps it from being a pretext to what we want it to say. And we need to consider it. The, the, the passage comes in the context of a world, turn back to chapter 1 with me, in a world that is created by God through Christ for the glory of God and in, in such a way that we receive good and are called to worship Him. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. It was all made through Him and for Him. Without Him, nothing that has been made was made. Everything that you can think of in creation was made particularly for the purpose of declaring the glory of Almighty God. This world was created that we would give Him the worship that is due His name. But we find the world in a far different place than its its original created state. We find the world in darkness. It's really important that we understand the darkness of the world if we have a hope of understanding the light of John 3.16. If we understand John 3.16 just in a light, tepid, moralistic, motivational context and not in the context of the darkness, of the depravity of this fallen world, we will not understand its magnificence. We will not understand its glorious reality. The question theologically that presses in on us at this point is this question. Is man merely spiritually ill or is he spiritually dead? Is man merely just a little bit off with a need to be stirred with prevenient grace so that he does just a little bit better and lives his best life now? There's a hint for what I believe. Or is... The reality of fallen humanity, one, that we have fallen not to the extent that we are as evil as we could be, but that we have a depravity that has pervaded and touched every area of our existence, every area of creation. And ultimately then we are helpless in our own ability, we are spiritually uh, dead in our trespasses and sins. I believe that it is the latter. And I think that this passage clearly shows that reality. Look at verses 4 
uh, and 4 and 5 here in chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has overcome each one of us. That's the import of verses 4 and 5. There is a spiritual darkness. There is a spiritual wickedness. And that spiritual darkness has overtaken each one of us. Now, I'm not going to get into the depth of the the theology here. uh, But in Adam, we have all sinned. That is, in Adam, all of us are condemned already prior to our birth. Theologically, the reality is prior to our being born into this world, we already are the recipients of the condemnation of God because we are in Adam. And some of you might say, well, that's not fair. Well, you just find the passage that, 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 that God gives us in the economy of His Word that deals with the grand doctrine of fairness, and I'll stand up here and preach it for you. It's not there. In fact, there's so much, the, the Bible's so much better than fair. It's full of mercy and grace and salvation. Let's not get caught up on fair. But the reality is, if, if you don't like that, you take it further. In Adam, we've all been born with a, a sinful nature. And not only are we condemned in Adam, but then we confirm works of unrighteousness in the darkness by carrying out the desires of our flesh. So we're all condemned also by the deeds that we have carried out in the body. This world is a dark place, and the darkness, my friends, is not a problem out there. The darkness is a problem in here, in our spiritual being. The darkness is pervasive, and we are not spiritually sick. We are spiritually dead. Think back with me to Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but out of, the, out of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. You will come to death. Now was God just giving a false promise there, a false warning, or was He serious? Well, I would, I would encourage you that God does not lie. He does not give warnings uh, that are without complete and absolute truth. And this truth came to pass. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and death passed on to the entire uh, human race. Spiritual death, physical death, both are realities. So we have to ask the question, what kind of darkness is this? We, We need to remember that the world again was created for God's glory and for our good, that we should know Him and that we should worship Him. But Romans chapter 1 declares very clearly that we do not know Him and we do not worship Him apart from the saving graces of Almighty God. And really there are two clues even in our text if we read uh, verse 14 in our understanding of why Jesus even needed to come that point to the reality of the radical depravity of human beings, of human nature. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember those two words, grace and truth, Uh, that, That He is full of salvation and revelation. That He comes bearing the reality that we must be born again and in Him sufficient is the grace that achieves that regeneration. But also, we need revelation. We need to understand. We need knowledge about who He is and what exactly it is that He has done. You see, we have a problem that needs both 
the salvation and the revelation. We have a big, a radical problem. And I want to show you this morning quickly just three different areas where sin has impacted us that I think we see clearly in just the first chapters of John's Gospel. Look at verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That is relational language. He had covenanted with a people, with the nation of Israel, but those people rejected him. He was the God who had led them out of the wilderness, who had, who had protected them, who had provided for them, and yet they did not know how to rightly relate to him. So part of the outworking of our sinful nature is that we experience both in the, the vertical, in our relationship with God, and in the horizontal, a brokenness relationally. And this isn't the first time, of course, that relational language is brought forth. We see this as a reality all throughout the Scriptures. And we need to remember that when sin entered the world, it changed the relationships between God and man and even between man inside of our horizontal relationship. And in fact, part of the, the early uh, enumeration there in Genesis chapter 3 is that there's going to be a struggle domestically uh, between husband and wife. There's going to be this desire, husbands, that you would lord over your wife and wives. There's going to be this desire out of your sinful nature that you're going to want to usurp authority and place yourself in positions of leadership uh, inside the home and inside the church and inside of other spheres that, that God has not ordained. Sin has brought that reality. God created the world. He orchestrated the world. He, he created it with perfect relational structure. So why is it that we find so much relational struggle today? And the answer to that question is clear. It's because we have sinned in Adam and we continue to sin out of our own nature, out of our own flesh. There's another particular area where I see the relational kindness of God. Now, now could we all agree this morning, the reality that when Adam and Eve sinned, God would have been justified if He would have thrown them out of the garden and just said, forget it, I'm done with humanity. But He doesn't do that. And, and, and here's the thing, we don't have to get to, to the New Testament to see that our God is a relational God constantly pursuing His people. And His people constantly, friends, this whole idea that man is ultimately the one who seeks and finds God, and God doesn't seek after man first, that is a, that is a viewpoint that is taken apart from the revelation of God. There is no way you can read the entire economy of, of the Word of God and think that we, we in our flesh are people who long for God and just given enough time, we will bring ourselves back into right relationship with Him. To read the Word of God and to know the people of God is to know you give us five minutes in, 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 a, in a fallen world with our idols and we will run from God even if He has shown us the very, next, the very uh, previous day His wondrous works. That's who we are. That's how we function. And God consistently pursues us. Here's an illustration for you that maybe you have missed that just captures my attention in my heart so much. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, we find the providence and the kindness of God in demonstrating um, judgment against sin. Verse 24 of chapter 3 in Genesis, He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So there it is. Adam and Eve have sinned. And there we see God instituting, placing cherubim in, 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 a, in the entrance to the garden so that it is guarded from Adam and Eve coming back in to that garden. The garden is the place where relationally God dwelt in His presence, in His special presence, with Adam and Eve. And now they've been cast out of His presence, out of that garden. And so you may think, well, one day His presence with His people will be restored. I bet you that's at the very end of Revelation, but friends, it's not. We don't even get through Exodus before listen to these words and and pick up on the reality, the theme, that the cherubim are there at the garden guarding the presence of God and the tree of of life. Listen to the words of Exodus chapter 25 and, 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 and just think about the relational import of what is spoken of here. God's giving a description of how to uh, to construct the Ark of the Covenant. And He says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits, and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, and hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on the one end, and one cherubim on the other end. Of one piece of of the cherub excuse me of one piece of the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on its two ends the cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you listen to these words there I sh- I will meet with you And from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim, there on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Is our God not amazing? He guards us and He protects the way. He demonstrates that His presence is closed because our sin has divided us from Him. But then in His early plan, He deals with His people and He constructs the cherubim again and He says, this is the place where I will dwell and I will speak with you. I will relate to you. The the nation of Israel, no one can come to me today and give me an argument that the nation deserved a, a, a reconstructed relationship with the triune God of the universe, but God moved in their direction and provided a way. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that wonderful? Think about, think, think about this. Think about how God says there, I will, I, will, I will meet with you there and I will give you the commands. And you might think, well, good, we'll get the commands and we'll do those and we'll be great. Through the relationship we have with the lawgiver, we will obey the law and everything will be fine. Wrong. That's not how this works at all. Because what we find is as we receive the testimonies of the Lord, there's a more pervasive problem than just knowing the law and obeying it. We have a spiritual problem relationally, but also I think we can find intellectually. Our our sin nature leads to broken relationship, but it also relates to our misunderstanding and misapplying everything that God says. You know, when we find... When we find Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, we've already seen it in the life of Nicodemus, but we see it in other places. Often, Jesus says something like this, Have you not read? Have you not heard? 
Well, what's the problem there? The problem is that human fragility, our, our, our human nature, our sin nature, has impacted not only our relationship with God, but our knowledge of God. And, and God speaks to us, but without God empowering, and friends, we should be so prayerful that God would give us more and more illumination of His Word. Uh, we should be beggars for mercy and grace that we would rightly divide the Word of truth, that we would not misappropriate the Word of God into our lives because what we find, friends, if you look at the Pharisees and you think, boy, I'm glad I'm better than them, you have not begun to understand the purpose of the Pharisees being written into the narrative of Scripture. They're written there so you can look and say, there I am. Their problem is my problem. I am that man on a given day. So we also have an intellectual problem. Theologians talk about, and inscribe this into your minds, they talk about the noetic fall. That is the, the consequences of the fall that, that creep into our relating to knowledge correctly, uh, having knowledge correctly. We don't know what we need to do. We don't remember what we have learned. We have, in fact, Romans chapter 1, if you turn there, I'm going to read through these quickly for the sake of time, but Romans chapter 1 really enumerates the outworking of the noetic fall. In verse 18, we are told that we suppress the truth of God. We have received the truth of God, but we suppress it. Verse 19, we refuse to believe that which has been revealed to us. Verse 20, we are without excuse, and yet... Do you not find that in this world we make excuses all the time? Verse 21, we refuse to honor and give thanks to the Creator. Verse 21, we become futile in our thinking. Verse 21, again, we have foolish and darkened hearts. Verse 22, uh, we are fools who, possess, who profess to be wise. And yet in verse 23, we, we are prone to idolatry, which is the epitome of foolishness. And then in verse 24, we are given to various lusts that dishonor our bodies. Verse 25, we prefer lies to the truth. That is the outworking of the noetic fall. One of the greatest proofs, I think, of the noetic fall is found in verse 10 of John chapter 1. Look with me there. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus created everything out of nothing, that he would display his goodness and kindness to his creation, and yet we desired, we loved the lie of Satan in Adam more than we did the truth of God. And friends, that's true for all of us who are here gathered in His name today. Apart from the grace of God, that is who we are. And this is why we have verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness, to, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. We are so fallen in our intellectual capability. God had, had, had built testimony after testimony after testimony. But, but God also knew that He needed to send John before Jesus because the entire nation would need someone to point them back to who Jesus was. Now you might think rightly, well that seems odd. 
There's an entire religious structure there and God has given the priestly order and he's been given the oracles of God. And surely the the Pharisees and all of the religious leaders will just read from the Old Testament and they will rightly apply it to Jesus and the the scriptures will just point point to who Christ is. Well, that's true. The problem is the Pharisees, the religious leaders are beset with radical depravity in such a way that they're not pointing to Jesus, their religious inclination, it, it collapses on itself and it points back to who? To them, to their own glory. And friends, that's the religious reality in all of our lives at a given point. We want to take the things of God and make them bring glory to ourselves instead of allowing them to speak clearly to the glory of God. So we have... A problem, relationally, we have one, we have one intellectually, and, and just for, by way before I move on, this problem is pervasive. Look at verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Not even John, not even the one who was going to testify about the light was the light. He was still part of the darkness. He was still radically depraved, and his relational uh, reality with the Lord and with other people was broken, was flawed, was maimed, and also intellectually. John, John didn't do the work of being the witness out of his intellect. He was empowered through the Spirit. And that's the, the next reality that is broken in the context of John 3.16, we are spiritually depraved. Not only are we alienated relation, relationally, not only are we darkened intellectually, but we are blinded spiritually. We don't seek after God who reveals Himself. We seek after idols, the created things of this, of this world. And that's why we need the, the, the wake-up call of John, uh, this interaction with chapter 3, this interaction with Nicodemus and Jesus. In verse two, uh, excuse me, chapter two, twenty-four and twenty-five. But Jesus, on his part, did not in, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Spiritual depravity, spiritual wickedness. And then in verse three, we have Jesus telling Nicodemus, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see." the kingdom of God. He won't perceive it. Intellectually, he won't understand it. So he will not pursue it. And we see also in these passages that are contextual to John 3.16, the cleansing of the temple, because we in our spiritual depravity will always take the means that God gives us for grace and use them for our own foolish, idolatrous end. All this we see culminate in the imperative spoken of immediately before, and this is really the drawing down on the context. So, so we, we have a world that was created for the glory of God, that we would worship God, but it is radically fallen, relationally, spiritually, intellectually. It is not as God would have created it. But we see all of this culminate in the imperative reality spoken of right before John 3.16. Again, remember, this is a world created for Christ through Christ. And we are living in darkness. Jesus has made an emphatic argument here that we all must be born again and that there is no hope that we will even see the kingdom of heaven without being born again. Then he emphatically, he takes Nicodemus as if Nicodemus is still not getting it. Poor Nicodemus. Are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet he understands so few things. And what Jesus does, 
right after walking him through this reality that we need to be born again, which is spoken of in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, this is Isaiah, this, this need for a regeneration in the hearts of the people of God. God has not been veiled about. He's been clear about this reality. Nicodemus still isn't getting this. And so Jesus points to another passage that no doubt Nicodemus had been taught from his infancy. Turn to to Numbers 21 with me this morning. Numbers 21, and we'll begin in verse 4. Verse 4 of Numbers 21. From Mount Or, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Now, have you ever experienced impatience in your Christian walk with the Lord? No, you're all very patient people. Good, I'm glad this won't apply to us. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I've had so many people respond to the Word of God that way. We loathe this worthless food. Preach on the lies, preacher. Don't tell us the truth. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. Boy, this would, this, this would fix our hermeneutics. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, that everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Now look back at, at John three, fourteen and fifteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now what we have in Numbers twenty one, here is the nation. They've just received victory from the hand of the Lord. But yet, even though they have just the day before received victory from God's hand, miraculously, in a way that they can see all of their enemies, the Bible records, are devoted to destruction, they are still alienated in some sense, relationally, darkened intellectually, and blinded spiritually. And so what do they do? They grumble against God. They complain about their circumstance. And so God sends judgment that He might again reveal Himself both as the sovereign judge of all creation and as the merciful Redeemer. Redeemer. All are called then to look upon the serpent and... and when they did that, they were saved from physical death. As they looked to this, the bronze serpent, they would not die a physical death from the venom of the snake. Now there is something significant here, I think, that we can't miss. The people were called to listen to the words of Moses because God spoke through Moses the law. God has dealt with Moses. God has called Moses to speak on his behalf, to carry the commandments to the people. And so one of the things that we have to see in what Jesus is saying about being lifted up 
is a parallel to what's going on in Numbers 21. When the people are given a command to look, they're not given a command to look to Moses. God could have said, hey, Moses, what will heal them is just read to them one more iteration of the law. Read to them one more time the commandments that I have spoken. Tell them to obey and then they will live. But we know that with our problem, relationally, intellectually, spiritually, we don't obey in our natural framework. So something radical has to happen, and that radical reality is we have to be saved miraculously, graciously. And so what Moses is commanded to do is to have a a bronze serpent on this stick that they look to that and live knowing that it is only by the grace of God that their physical life is maintained. And what Jesus is saying here is I will be, and it's interesting, the language lifted up literally gives this ascension type language that Jesus must be brought to a glorified state and all who look upon Him there, all who trust on His finished work and that alone, not only will they be set free from physical death, but spiritual death will reign no more in their bodies. That's the reality that we have this morning. Now you might say, well, that's a fantastic narrative, Jay. And I bet you that the nation of Israel, I mean, can you imagine this? I, look, look, my son, uh, was it Friday night? They went out to the Rose's house and we got one picture of him holding a snake about this big. And we were all ready to pull the car over and get out of the car. We felt so gross looking at that one tiny little snake. And he comes to the car when we went to pick him up. Hey, here's the snake. I didn't knock him out. I verified that he was a little fibber and he didn't have the snake anymore. But a snake, the whole point, a snake is kind of a frightening, intimidating reality. If there was a bunch of snakes that came into the congregation and bit some of us, some of us died and God made a way where if we looked at this bronze serpent, wouldn't we praise Him for saving us? Wouldn't we rightly worship Him? And we would think, well man, I bet you the nation of Israel after that saw the glory of God and they rightly worshipped Him. They got over their depravity. They, they, they loosed themselves from the relational, intellectual, spiritual problem that pervaded their ancestors. <laughs> Not even close. We find in 2 Kings chapter 18, here, here is the proclamation of a good king, a, a declaration about what he had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, the, the idols. They had already given themselves to the idols, but he went on further from there. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They had worshipped the instrument of salvation and not the the God of their salvation. Friends, that that points to the reality, the contextual reality of John 3.16. That the world that God shows and demonstrates His love to is not a world that is merely spiritually sick in need of a bunch of, 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 of spiritual cheerleaders in the pulpit that somehow can just rah-rah you into feeling better about God, receiving provenient grace, and then carrying out the Christian life in your own strength. No, the world that Jesus displays His love towards is a world that is radically fallen, that is given to relational strife, to intellectual darkness, and to spiritual pride such that we give ourselves to idols all the time. There's a reason why the Puritans, they would walk into this congregation 
And they would throw a fit about some of our decor. And I'm not saying I agree with them, but they were aware that we are prone. They would not, if, if you go to some uh, campuses that were created in the early American period, you'll find that there are churches that have no crosses anywhere. Why? Because the, the, the leaders of the church at that time understood it's possible for us to get to the point where we all wear a golden cross, idolizing it, and not giving all of our lives to the living God. We are all idolaters apart from the graces of Almighty God. Friends, we turn the gathering of the saints into something that is meant to just stir our affections and, and please us all the time. I don't know how many conversations I've had where, well, the Bible says, and somebody will cut me off, well, but I'd really think. Well, I mean, to have a church of your own making, the only thing that you need to do is be in the beginning, before the beginning, and to agree with the rest of the Trinity that you will accomplish the work of redemption, to shed your own blood to atone for the sins of those that the Father has given you, and to apply through the work of the Spirit the works of redemption to each individual. You need to create your... If you want to have your own voice as to what the gathering of the saints should be apart from the Word of God, then you just need to redeem fallen man in your own strength. Good luck with that. We're all prone to make the gathering of the saints about us. And you might say, well, Jay, I've, we've not complained against God in the same way. You're being a little bit too uh, hyperbolic here. Really? You know, one question that often comes up and I think really reveals our hearts, and sometimes I think it's, it's a question that is given in a benign sense, and I'm not judging people for asking a question here. But, but one question that I think really reveals what we think about the cosmos, the world around us, and how it should be structured is this question. If God is sovereign, Brian, if God really is sovereign, do you believe God's sovereign? Oh, good. We're, we're in accord. If God's really sovereign, if He controls all things, then why did He allow the snake in Genesis chapter 3? Why did He allow Adam and Eve to be tempted? Why did He allow for sin to enter into His creation? I mean, Brian, if, if, if God would have stopped the, serp the serpent in the early chapters of Genesis, then we wouldn't have to worry about the serpents that we find or the complaining that we find in Numbers chapter 21. God could have cut off sin from the very root. Why did He not stop Satan from slithering into the garden? Why has He allowed sin to impact His creation? He must, he must either be maniacal or weak. Oh friends, that is a grumbling question. Remember, God sent the snakes to bite the Israelites in their complaining. And some of us think we would never complain about the lot that we have here in our own wilderness, but we complain all the time. Thinking that this world should be orchestrated in such a way to minimize our pain as if we were owed a life of minimal pain. That we are not. In fact, I think from the biblical narrative, we could argue the exact inverse. 
You see, we reveal much of our hearts by our questions. We are alienated relationally. We, we don't completely comprehend what God is doing. We are darkened intellectually. We are blinded spiritually. And often we think the ends for which the cosmos was created is that man would be glorified. That we would experience our best life. Even the title of that nitwit's book declares his foolishness. Our best life now. That's nonsense. The answer to the question of why, why did God allow sin to enter the garden, is staring you in the face today. The answer is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes upon Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God wasn't sitting back in, in Genesis chapter 3 going, hmm, I wonder what I'm up to here. Boy, there's got to be a plan B. We, Jesus, get in here. You will never believe what they just did. That's not what's happening. There is no plan B in God's economy. When God allows the serpent to enter into the garden and bite Adam's heel with the venom of sin infecting him and all of the human race, He is setting up the cosmos to be the theater for His redemptive work in sending His Son into the universe. And what is the outcome of this reality? We know the world was created through Christ to be the theater again of His redemptive works and His power. The, the creation was then subjected to sin. But beloved, the reality, the glory of the Gospel that I hope we continue to work through in the weeks ahead is this reality. That we will stand in eternity knowing Christ both as Creator, but also as our Redeemer. We would never have understood that Jesus loved us enough to die for us had Adam not fallen in the garden. Adam's sin is not beyond God's providential working and His reigning and His ruling. And what will happen, in the, and we'll get to this, I'm, I'm, I'm locked and loaded with about four sermons in me right now. I'm trying to just give you the preface, but if, you, if y'all will just give me another three hours, we can get the whole passage out of the way and go home and be on to the next verse. Beloved, the reality is that we will stand in eternity fully confirmed, not able to sin, worshiping both our Creator and our Redeemer for all of eternity. And I promise you this, the sins against you that you lament that have brought you tears in the night, those sins will be the very means by which He shows His power to overcome and confirm you as a saint for all of eternity. Those sins that you are most ashamed of, that you've committed, that you, that you wished that you had no memory of, friends, I promise you, those are the very things that God will use to demonstrate the grandeur of His love. That, that as heinous as our sins are, are, God's love is all the more glorious. And it conquers all that we are. Friends, what I want you to get out of this is the reality that, that John 3.16 sets in the context of a cosmos created as a redemptive theater to all of God's works. I was thinking about this winding everything down and I'll, I'll close with this. I was winding down last night before bed and I thought, oh! The voyage of the Don Trader. And I, I looked up, I, I ran upstairs into my kids' room. They were all asleep. And I said, 
I just started actually rummaging through their books and they are looking at me like, what is he doing? And I said, you all have the Chronicles of Narnia up here? And they're all just going, he's finally lost it. That may be true. And so I was given instruction, didn't find it. Finally, Sarah told me it was up here at the office, so I came up, set the alarm off, had a nice conversation with one of our local police officers at 11 o'clock last night. It was wonderful. Super embarrassing. All part of God's providence. But I, I thought about this reality at the end of, of uh, Lewis's uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. And what we have here is, is, is Aslan is sending finally Edmund and Lucy back to their world. And leave it to Lewis. He's created Narnia, an entire world, to point to Jesus. A different universe, a different story for children that they might understand that the, 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 the rudimentary, the elementary doctrines of God, and he does it through a, through a, a fantasy-type narrative. Well, well, Lucy and Edmund are getting to the end of their time. They've grown older. Oh, guys, one of the things I love about the Chronicles of Narnia is when Lucy is walking with Aslan, who's the Christ type. See, I could geek out here. Uh, and, and she says to Aslan, you're bigger than you once were. And, and if you remember from the story, um, Aslan's response is, well, that's because you're getting older, my dear. And the older you get, the larger I become. The import is that in our lives, the older that we get, uh, the larger Christ becomes to us, the more we want of him. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful poetic way to teach children the glory of God? Well, he goes on to point out uh, the reality of his redemptive work. And here, uh, Re-Sheep, the, or Re-Cheep, or whatever his name is, the scuzzy little mouse, he has gone on to the land of Aslan, which is a type of heaven. And so Aslan here is going to send Lucy and Edmund back to their world, and they're, they're too old to return. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into, the, into your country from our world? I shall be telling you all the time, said Aslan, but I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across the river. But do, but do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder, and now come. I will open the door in the sky and send you to your own land. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, Oh, do, do, do make it soon. Dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, Edmund and Lucy both together in their despairing voices said. You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to become close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, said Lucy. It's you, We won't meet you there. And how can we live if we never meet you again? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me there by that name. This was the very reason why you have been brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little while, you would know me better there. 
Leave it to Lewis to create an entire alternate universe that also points to the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, that's the point of John's Gospel, that everything that happens in this life points to the living Christ. Everything that we experience, every ounce of this creation cries out that Christ would be glorified in every area of our living. So we should continually worship in light of that reality that He has declared His goodness through the life, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence so thankful, so thankful for the gift of Your Word, so thankful that You've communicated to us in narrative form the redemptive works of Christ. We're so thankful to come to John 3.16 and not disconnect it from its context, but see that the entirety of Your Word points home to You, to Your glory, to Your works, to what You have done. And friends, uh, and Lord, I, I pray for my friends here that they would, they would continually look out upon this world and Your Word and be refreshed anew knowing that You're working redemption in their lives. That, Father, there will be a day when we are made whole again. That we will not struggle relationally. We won't struggle intellectually. We won't struggle spiritually. And we will not stand before Your throne thinking that we are the ones that have made ourselves whole. But we'll know that You've done all of this through the power of Your Spirit and the work of the cross. Father, we thank You that You have declared, not only in word, but also in deed, that work which You have worked to, to, to save those who would call upon Your name. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, that has never called upon Your name for salvation, that has never turned from their sin, that has never understood what it means to be sinful before You in need of grace. Father, I pray that You would crush that person and show them at the same time Your mercy, that they would turn in repentance and faith and call upon Your name for salvation and on Your name alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If y'all would stand. Thank you.